sin had left a crimson stain, he, what, washed it white as snow. Thank you, Amy, for reminding us of that in our offertory. Well, it's time to dig into the Word of God. We've spent some time this morning in singing to prepare our hearts for speaking right things about the Lord and getting ourselves in the right perspective. Our Father who's in heaven, your name is holy. And we've spent some time in prayer, so we are knowing our sufficiency comes from Him. We've spent some time giving recognizing he gives us all things and now we'll spend some time in the word prepared to hear what he has to say and do it if you have little ones you see the the herd is exiting right now you can exit with them up through grade four love to have you your little one down there if you'd like to have them down there or you can keep them with you that's fine too because we love kids and a special thanks before we get started special thanks to all those who participated yesterday in the workday if you're in here and you participated in the workday, just lift your hand up real quick if you were here for any of the time that we're here. Thank you very much. Look around you, and many are downstairs who did that very thing. The place looks fantastic. Hard work resetting the sanctuary, uh, hard work around the outside trimming and all of that, getting us ready for the summertime. A big thanks uh, from me to you and from our congregation to you. Thank you for that. And also for those who gave faithfully, uh, that now we can see the results of your giving, where the carpet is in. And, and so uh, we are so grateful for you and for your faithfulness and generosity. And so... All these things the Lord's doing, we know that it is His hand, so we're thankful for that. And happy summertime to you. It is those kinds of days where uh, many of us are traveling and all around the U.S., and many more will be traveling later. Lots of fun things coming up, and so we're excited about this summer. If you would turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 12. I'm going to read in our next section with you. Uh, you can read in the New American Standard if you look for it in the back of the chair or just in the copy that you use and study and memorize and and lord willing this is not the first time you've been in the word to, uh, this week otherwise you're starving this morning and that's not how the lord prepared you to walk with him he wants you to be in the word every day so take a take time before you leave today as you get maybe a little extra time in the summertime we're not running around quite so much uh, pick up a bible reading calendar there uh, together in the word on the welcome table take that with you Start to begin to read verse by verse through the Bible, start to finish, and just start again as you get to uh, one year anniversary of doing that. And the richness of being in the Word and all the, all the benefit and all the uh, encouragement and the direction that the Lord intended for His Word to provide you will be yours as you begin to break that Word apart and seeing how God works in the Old Testament, still works in the New, and how He wants to work in you. So that's my encouragement to you and the, uh, and the constant reminder that I want to give you to be in the Word. So today we start off on a, different, a new section. And so I want to read that, and we have, I have titled this section, Insufficiency. And this is part one, really, introduction, but as a subtitle, Insufficiency, a key to being useful to God. And I think as we see this passage, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Picking up at verse 12, we're going to read all the way through chapter 3, verse 6, which seems to be the logical end of that thought right there for Paul, so we'll just work through the chapter break. Read together with me in your copy of God's Word. I'll give you a verse cue so we can stay together. Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Verse 15. For we are... A fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Verse 16, to the one, an aroma from death to death, to the, to the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Verse 17, for we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? Verse 2. You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Verse 3. Being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Verse 6, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit 
gives life. In our previous study, we finished last week, uh, we noted that forgiveness is not a word that's embraced by our modern culture. We noted, in fact, not only is it not embraced, forgiveness is looked at as weakness and unforgiveness looked at as strength and retaliation as a manifestation of a strong person. It's just that type of opposite world that we live in, a world at odds with God's instructions for man, that we find it's in this next section of Paul's letter. And this next manifestation of the habits of the culture, really at odds with what the Word of God has, has to say, has to do with self-confidence. And as we introduce this section today, and we just get our feet wet, we can notice that we don't often hear uh, what passengers heard on a flight to London. The captain was about to take off on this flight, and before taking off, he addressed the plane and said, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is your captain speaking. We'll be crossing the Atlantic this evening at an altitude of 37,000 feet. Our estimated speed is 730 miles per hour. We should reach London in approximately five hours. After a moment of silence, the captain continued, We'll take off just as soon as I get up enough nerve. Captain obviously joking, hopefully joking, trying to calm the anxiety of some as they board a plane and, and take off. Mark Twain said, all you need in life is ignorance and confidence, and then success is a sure thing. Someone has said, confidence is the feeling you sometimes have before you fully understand the situation. I like to apply that to children. Confidence is what we had before we had our first. We were surely unconfident after we had our second and third and consecutive fourth. Uh, and it was trial by fire and learning by uh, being immersed in it. But the word self-confidence are words we all understand. Everybody wants confidence. Uh, everyone wants to appear self-sufficient. Everybody wants to be independent. Desiring to be confident on its own now is not all bad. We see, certainly in our personal life, it is the pursuit of the absence of fear. The pursuit of the absence of insecurity, the pursuit of assuredness, you know, with our homes and families and relationships, people want to be confident that there is no danger, that there's no threat to security. When we lived in Miami, we noted that the security system business was big business, especially in people's homes, and they would buy dogs that were big and loved to bite, and that helped them feel secure uh, in their homes in Miami. Having confidence, certainly not necessarily bad. People desire confidence uh, in their spouses, of faithfulness. They want acceptance. That's where relationships flourish. Uh, confidence in sports. You know, athletes are taught to practice and refine the skills of their game so that confidence is built on ability. You know, we use that in track when you train and you train and you train and you get to the point where your pacing is at a certain level. And then when you're getting ready to run at 800 and you're going to compete, then you run to win and you count on your training. You're confident in what you've done before so that you're not uh, metabolically in a, in a big problem about 600 meters in. You know, that's what we want with our airline pilots as well. You know, a placed confidence in training and practice, familiarity with the plane, you know, confidence in those uh, in charge of maintenance so that when they take off, they know things are not going to fall off. You know, in our society, economists, they make market forecasts based on consumer confidence, you know, questions about job conditions, the likelihood of making a major purchase, those kind of things perhaps you've answered some uh, unwittingly in, in some survey, but they all play a part in people feeling confident in financial futures, you know, most importantly, confidence in spiritual things. That's not a bad thing. In fact, the Lord has made it very clear that we can be confident in his power. Proverbs, uh, or Psalm chapter 34, verse 19, rather, says, many, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. We, we have confidence in his power to do whatever he wishes and certainly to deliver us. And of course, the, the observation, which is common knowledge, that many are the afflictions of the righteous. Difficult times are part and parcel of knowing the Lord, and the Lord delivers out of all of them. Confidence in prayer, uh, you know, James chapter 1, verse 5, certainly, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all gener generously and without reproach. Uh, it will be given to him, but he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf for the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So confidence in, in prayer, we know that we can come and ask. This is a common uh, thing I encourage my boys as they work their route through difficult classes or difficult situations. You know, the Lord gives wisdom, and he doesn't say, why didn't you already know it? You know, that whole thing. Um, he gives to all generously, and he doesn't give a reproach with it. Why didn't you know this already? Uh, Lord, I need wisdom for this. Uh, we can have confidence that he'll give it because he said he would. Confidence in salvation, of course. 1 John 4, 14. 
We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Certainly, we understand salvation comes when we do what he's asked us to do in the way that he's asked us. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Very affirmative there. Um, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So we can have confidence in salvation, we can have confidence in prayer, confidence in the Lord's power. Um, certainly we can have confidence in his everlasting love. As a believer, Romans chapter 8, verse 37 through 39 is written for that specific purpose. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so there can be confidence uh, and, and freedom from anxiety about death, about facing God, a divine judgment, sin held against you, everlasting love, salvation, prayer, the Lord's power. All those things, can, we can be confident, and those are not bad things to be confident in because the, the Bible affirms that we can know these things for sure. So there can be positive confidence, a secure sufficiency, if you will, of a certain outcome based on the right things. And there can be a misplaced confidence, a self-confidence that just seems to dominate our culture. And, you know, it's admired, it's uh, complimented as the right outlook. You know, it's deemed, you know, what it takes to get the job done, if you will, as it deals with the temporary fleeting nature of this life, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, and all the confidence and false misplaced sufficiency that comes in all those things. We live in a culture, and I would say that has an obese sense of human capacity. That overgrown sense of human ability, I think, has to be linked to the self-esteem crusade. I've talked about this before as we talked about child rearing, but the telling of children that they are perfect in every way. And that crusade this self-esteem crusade has led to a generation without a balanced sense of insufficiency. And, and it seems that the symptoms are so bad now that it has led to its logical conclusion, which is a generation that can't carry on a conversation with someone who doesn't share their viewpoint because their viewpoint or their understanding must be, by way of the crusade of self-esteem, the perfect way in every way. And that there's no way that they could possibly be wrong. G.K. Chesterton called it over a hundred years ago. Here's where he said, quote, a man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. Chesterton says this has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert, which is himself, end quote. And he, of course, in that whole thing, doubts the truth of anybody but himself. And that's what we run into now in our culture. And, and as unfortunate as it is, we can bring, and, and we, we expect that from our culture. That's what I expect when I talk to people who are unredeemed, just this overbalanced sense of self-sufficiency, this overbalanced uh, uh, appreciation of their own ability to do whatever it is. That can come into the ministry that the Lord gives us. And although it's true that we can be confident in facing death and facing God, divine judgment, sins held against you in prayer and salvation, everlasting love, the Lord's power, and many other things, because the Bible asserts that those things are true and we can be confident in them, none of these confidences are based on our own power or our own accomplishment. And that's very important. And take note of this. See, none of the things that we can be confident about in the ministry are things that we bring about on our own. And Paul had an interesting thing to say about confidence and self-sufficiency in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. He says, For we are the true circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And I would just say, as Paul evaluated himself, there was always this overarching dependency and insufficiency that was very apparent. And Paul understood his life as a believer. He could say this, when it comes to salvation, or when it comes to the work God wants to do through us, there isn't any room for self-sufficiency. You remember his statement, of course, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, as we looked at that. 
He says, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So as Paul evaluates himself, it's always on the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle. And he uses the reasoning that he persecuted the true church when he thought he wasn't. He thought he was persecuting a cult of false teaching. But even in his observation of the work ethic that he brought to the ministry and labor he brought to his ministry, so he says, but his grace did not prove, to me toward, didn't prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. There was this foundational dependency on the work of Christ that always was so clearly indicated. So at the end he says, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So he says, you know, I brought a hard work ethic. I needed to catch up. I had done a lot of harm to the ministry. And so the, Lord, the grace of God didn't prove vain to me, and I labored hard more than any of the other ones. But even in that, Paul says, it was the grace of God working through me, not me. So Paul wasn't bringing his own ability. And it's so inspiring, I think, and, so, and I think should be so, that Paul, of all people, with all the education and all the experience that he had, and with the relationship to Christ that he had, with all that uniqueness, on the road to Damascus, and the Lord actually speaking to him directly and blinding him with a light and all of that, and, and with the wide influence that he had in the planting and the nurturing of the New Testament church, in the light of all that, there was always this sincere and this utter reliance on Christ for all of it, and the clear communication, not just that he felt that way, but he communicated that over and over again. And even when others boasted and promoted themselves, Paul could easily show the folly of all of that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless, but whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. And sometimes that happens in Christian circles, is people come into the church, perhaps into ministry, with a background in some certain thing in the world. And, and mistakenly, we can do this, or we can watch it being done, and that, that is to assume that the self-confidence and the competence a person may bring in from the world in fleshly things somehow translates into confidence, effectiveness, and success in God's eyes in spiritual things. Do you catch it? It happens a lot in the church. We automatically assume because someone is good at some certain thing in the world and that they're very confident and they have a lot of success there, that we bring that in that automatically guarantees success and confidence and competence inside a ministry perspective. But Paul puts all that on its ear in Philippians and he unravels that connection between the two. He says, listen, if I could put confidence in anything, if I could be considered competent to do anything, if I had what it took, in other words, was I came to the ministry, I had all the pedigree I needed. The introduction for my, in my bio would be very long and illustrious, and you should appreciate the fact, Paul says, would, would say that I'm here because I've got a lot of ability. See? But whatever things were gained to me, I just counted them as nothing. Because they were not effective in being effective in ministry. They didn't, my own sufficiency and all these other things, were not effective in me being effective for Christ. And so we can do that, and Paul wants to put all that on us here. And so later in our current study, this topic is going to come up again, and Paul is going to share his heart with them, as he's going to do in our current passage, of the source of true confidence and effectiveness in ministry. In 2 Corinthians eleven seventeen, he does that, and he starts here, and he says this, and it, you know, here it is, he's making fun of the foolish notion that effectiveness and power in the ministry could somehow spring from worldly confidence. And so he says this, what I'm saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. In other words, boasting in the flesh, okay? And that would apply certainly to what he just said in Philippians. He just was being a fool. He's just acting like a fool and saying, okay, this is why I'm going to be good. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. So in other words, I'm just going to be foolish and stupid, and I'm going to make this confidence of boasting like you do, and make it look like uh, you do, and you'll see how foolish that is. 
And so what we find with Paul, when he finishes these three chapters, which we're going to see uh, in the months to come, 11, 12, and 13, is that he comes back and he affirms from his heart and he shows from his experiences that it is the one who counts themselves insufficient to the flesh, in the flesh and who regards themselves as inadequate to the work of the ministry. Those are the ones that God's going to use, see. And Paul was so firmly convinced over and against the self-confident esteem of the world and everything it brings in that this is the true reality for the believer's effectiveness in ministry that he ends his letter with these statements in 2 Corinthians 12. He says this. Now listen, this is amazing. Okay, and he said to me, this is the Lord speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When he understood the Lord's perspective in this particular situation, as in all of his life, see, with this particular thing that the Lord gave him, we'll talk about it in just a second, uh, to keep him humble. When he understood the right perspective, as in all of his life, my grace is sufficient for you for powers perfected in weakness, because, let's catch this, because that's the case, says Paul. That he empowers the inadequate and makes sufficient the insufficient. So then he says this, so incongruent with what perhaps we would consider the right way to respond, perhaps just like with forgiveness, we think retaliation and holding a grudge and giving somebody a piece of our mind is, is strength. And Paul says that's foolishness. We're supposed to forgive and forgive like we've been forgiven. The same way is with this weakness thing. He says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So he doesn't say begrudgingly I will boast about my weaknesses or you know under my breath i'll say well i guess it's better to be weak now he says i'll openly admit it most gladly and then he says therefore i am well content with weaknesses with insults with distresses with persecutions with difficulties for christ's sake so these things that come along for the sake of Christ or for his glory because he deserves to be glorified through my body and whatever thing I find happening to me, whatever it is, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Therefore, I'll just give up and begrudgingly say, okay, this is how it's got to be. No. I'm very satisfied, Paul says, with my lot in life. Why? Because I figured out that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And this is Paul, so who in the course of ministry had been stoned, with stones, just to be clear, and in his near-death experience was able to see heaven and experience some uh, things that no one else had ever experienced. But instead of trying to let that wonderful experience become his introductory bio and get added to all the things that he'd done already, and then again, and besides this, this illustrious Paul who's about to speak with us, not only does he have this great education and all this experience and did all these things for the church, not only that, but he also got to see heaven come and give him a big applause. Instead of saying that, see, he was well content with being insufficient. See, Paul knew it was key to being useful to God. And, and as a footnote, and I want you to look at it, this would be kind of a backward way to come around to this passage, but I think we get a glimpse of just how bad self-confidence and self-sufficiency and apparent fleshly boasting in the ministry is. So bringing all whatever your worldly experience is and thinking somehow you're going to be super successful in the ministry because you're super good at whatever it is. Because here's the deal. If the Lord decided that Paul himself needed a thorn in the flesh to keep him away from it, Paul... To keep him away from relying on his experiences and, and counting them as a reason for success, then I think that tells us just how bad the Lord thinks it is. If he had to do this for Paul and say, Paul, I don't want you relying on this. I'm going to make you so weak that you realize that there isn't any power coming from the stuff that you did or you experienced. It's all going to come from me. See? And then he says to the church, just, just a few verses later, on the heels of all their insults and, and the difficult time they gave him, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9, he says this, and we're just surveying this, we're going to go back, and, and this is going to be so rich when we look at this. He says this, for we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you're strong. Thus we also pray for you that you be made complete. Paul doesn't have to defend himself from what they think of him. 
And we've seen this over and over again. You know, they said, you're weak, Paul. You know, you're, you're, you, you're not a very good speaker. You're not a very good pastor. I mean, you just, you just stink all over the place, you know. You write some really powerful words, but when you come, you're just like, oh, wow. So unimpressive. Paul doesn't have to defend himself. I mean, I think the defense of his ministry is, is a reluctant defense. As you, as you hear him say what he says, he reluctantly says, listen, you know, I really wish you'd look at me as the person who is your pastor, who loves you, and you would love me in the same way, and you'd remember the things I've gone through. And we've seen some of that as we looked early in this, this uh, letter. But, does, but he doesn't. He just makes it very clear that any success, any ability he may have in the ministry can't be connected to any natural sufficiency on his own part. And so he just makes that crystal clear to everybody, and the Lord helped him along with that in what we saw just in this last chapter. And then 1 Corinthians 3, 6, remember this? He, said, he says, this, says this early in this letter. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but what? But God was causing the growth, right? So then... Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. So it doesn't matter what Apollos did, no matter what I did, because God was at work doing the actual work that made the difference, see. And as we see part of our passage today, Paul reveals his heart, and he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, we just read at the beginning, he says this. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Again, he just makes it very clear. Listen, I don't have anything in me that is adequate to produce anything of eternal value in you. All of our adequacy comes from the Lord. And mark this, as we've seen, this is how Paul classifies his confidence in any ability he may have brought to the table. Just very, very consistent. You remember, of course, the confident boasting Paul had at the beginning of this letter. He says this, 2 Corinthians 1.12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. What's his boasting really in? That the grace of God has been at work in him and he consistently did exactly what the Lord asked him to do. The Lord gave him the job, in other words. Paul's confidence not in fleshly wisdom, simply that he'd done the work God given him to do as a galley slave. Remember when we looked at the background of that? I'm just a galley slave an under rower, if you will, a house manager of the goods God has for the church. And so I just took what he gave and put it on the table. And I was just a servant, see? And so Paul says, I have a boasting in that. What's my boast? That I just did what the Lord asked me to do and empowered me to do and gave me to do. And I just gave it to you, just like he gave it to me. There wasn't any of my own self-sufficiency. I didn't bring anything from the world that would ensure my success. I just did what the Lord wanted, and I just counted all things as, as loss that I brought with me and just said, okay, Lord, if you want to use me, then I'm insufficient to the task. Just do what you want with me, and when I'm weak, then I'm strong. See, This was God's plan. I just accomplished it by his grace. So in 2 Corinthians 10, where Paul brings before them this attitude many have towards him, you know, they regard him as, you know, something of a mediocre pastor, you know, he's a bad speaker, you know, he's wishy-washy, he says yes, and then he says no, and we can't trust anything he says, he says one thing, and then says another thing, you know, all of that kind of stuff. He doesn't try to convince them that he should be classified higher. Hey, whoa, 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 I, I should be three or four marks higher than that, Okay. Instead, he just observes the whole thing going on in the first century Christianity, and he says in 2 Corinthians 10, for we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of these who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. In other words, they're using worldly tools and worldly measurements and ratings to classify how effective they are in their fleshly efforts inside the church. So let's just use some kind of rating to figure out how we do all the things that we do and we'll classify ourselves and see how effective we are. And Paul says that's just foolishness to compare yourselves with other men. Ultimately, Paul says again, what you say about yourself has little credence in the work of the ministry. Paul says, here's what matters, 2 Corinthians 10, 17. But he who boasts is to boast in the... Lord, for it is not he who commends himself that's approved, but he whom the Lord commends. So regardless of what the minister says about himself or what the people say about the minister, the only thing that matters is what? What the Lord says about him, and he's given a very specific task to do, and he's empowered the person to do it, and when that person is weak, then he's strong. When he's inadequate, insufficient, then he has sufficiency, see? 
And that, that applies to every ministry that you're going to do. The less sufficient you think you are to the task, and the more you rely on the Lord to complete it, the more effective you'll be, you'll be at it. Okay? And just a real, real one-to-one. And so I think this, here's the thing. As we work our way through these 12 verses over the next several weeks, we're going to see a theme repeated, and we've seen, and I've said it to you over and again, and you can write this down in your notes if you're a note-taker. A key to being useful to God begins with going to seminary and making sure you got your doctorate. It begins with, you've been in church all your life and you've served on several boards. It begins with regarding ourselves as insufficient to the task. That's where it begins. I'm insufficient to accomplish anything in this issue. And you should find yourself, when you're in a position where you are giving some counsel, or where you're doing some teaching, or where you're, you're being used as, a, as someone to mentor someone else, or whatever it is, that you should be praying that the Lord will accomplish his own word and will and way through you, and that you in no way should be relying on your own experience, but the Lord's power through you to them. And when somebody comes and talks to you, or whatever they do, you want to be an instrument of the Lord's peace to them, or the Lord's instruction to them, or encouragement, or reproof, or whatever it is, and it is Him accomplishing His will through you, and you're not bringing anything to the table through your flesh that is going to be effective at all in any of that. So, key to being useful to God begins by regarding ourselves as insufficient to the task. Now, here's the deal. It's a footnote, okay? And I want to clarify this. The usefulness and glory in ministry is not in you declaring that you're insufficient, okay? No, that's not the glory, okay? I, I want to make, I make, make this clear. As if somehow walking around declaring our personal uselessness has value and worth on its own. No. I'm not talking about you declaring you're useless, okay? Because the Lord has affirmed that you are definitely not useless. In fact, he's empowered you by his Holy Spirit and given you spiritual gifts to be very effective in the church. And you have a part to play in the church and ministry that no one else here at Berean can play. You are here with spiritual gifts tailored to your faith that is perfect for whatever ministry we need to be doing. We might not be doing it yet because you're not doing it. Okay? Or we may need help in other places and you need to plug in. You've been equipped so I'm not saying that the glory is you declaring your uselessness and your, and your lack of value and no worth. No. The glory here, catch this, and the value and the effectiveness will come, if we understand Paul's heart here, okay, in the sufficiency of Jesus, which is, catch this, mark this, discovered in the reality of your insufficiency and your weakness in ministry. Okay? Do you understand? It's not just you walking around saying, I'm useless. I'm useless, Lord. I'm just useless. No. The glory is you acknowledging that to the Lord and saying, Lord, use me in whatever way you see you can do. And, and the glory will come to Jesus at that point. People will know this is not you. Okay, people, every guy I know that's in, in the ministry, okay, especially in the, in the serving as an elder, most of those people would say, and, and I am one of them, that I was not a public person and a people person and a speaker before the Lord called me into ministry. In fact, that's the opposite of where I would have been. I was, you know, a loner kind of thing. I liked to camp and hike on my own. I went for days out with my back. I, I liked being by myself. And I wasn't a public speaker. I, I didn't consider that something that I was wanted to do, aspire to do, or that I was even good at, okay? I felt like my grammar was insufficient to do it. And many of you probably sat there and said, you were right about that, okay? But see, for 26 years, I have a English teacher who sat right there. And so over time, Verb forms and, and uh, number agreement and all that have been brought into conformity. Because my wife is my number one fan, and she has the right to say what she needs to say. And, and she's my helpmate, and she says, okay, you did this wrong, you did this wrong. And you always say it like this, and that's not how you're supposed to say it. Say. So I get it. The Lord has helped shape me uh, you know, through her, and, he's, and he has empowered me to do some things. And I know there's no elder I know who speaks to whoever would have thought they'd be a public speaker or they'd be a public person or walk into a room and talk to everybody. That was the opposite of me, okay? Sorry. So the Lord works those things out, see? But it, it, it's not you just saying, I'm useless. It's, it's you realizing in your own heart that you don't bring anything to the table that's going to be useless in a ministry. You need the Lord to equip you and, and empower you. And when, when he does that, uh, then he gets glory. That's the glory, see? That's the glory. He who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Committing yourself, you know, that's no big deal. 
It's who the Lord commends. So, the effectiveness and the value here is discovered in the reality of our insufficiency and our weakness. The benefit's not in you declaring. The benefit is found in you realizing it and following and finding Christ to be sufficient. That's it, see? That's it. I know you understand that. All right, now, as we work our way through our passage, we're going to have some handholds that we normally have as we work our way through big passages like this. So I'm, I'm going to give them some. I won't put them on the screen right now because they really don't matter. These, these are just kind of the breaks as we go through, and you'll kind of see this as we work through. So as Paul understands his weakness and he tells his heart to the church here about how this is all going to wash out, we're going to see sufficiency. Paul is insufficient. He's, he uses the word inadequate. I'm inadequate. Who's adequate for these things? Who can do this? And so we're going to see sufficiency in Christ's leadership. That's verses 12 through 14. We're going to see sufficiency in the Word of God in 15 through 17. We're going to see sufficiency in the power of the gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. So we're going to see sufficiency as Christ's servants. So Paul is going to see sufficiency not in his own leadership ability, not as what he, the classes he took, not in, you know, that he brought all this stuff to the table. He's going to see sufficiency in Christ's leadership. He's going to see sufficiency in the Word of God, in the power of the gospel, and as a servant. That's where he's going to see sufficiency. God doing his work through Paul doing these things. Now, let's look briefly at our, in our remaining time, we're, we're going to get to see some of Paul finding sufficiency in Christ's leadership. And I think you'll, you, where I'm trying to go with this, because the passage can be kind of cumbersome as you read through, just like, well, what, what are we supposed to get from this? I'm hoping this will help you. And, and we'll begin to see some of the effectiveness of regarding yourself as insufficient to the task of ministry. Now look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, if you would. And we'll read 12 and 13. And this is a situation where Paul could proclaim God's sufficiency through his insufficiency. Paul says this, Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest from my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Pause right there. Now, I gave you, if you've been with us, I gave you some of the scenario that's going on there. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But I want to break the passages apart a little bit and, and uh, look at some of these phrases. And I think this will help you see, as Paul expresses this, he's just expressing his heart to them, how the, this thing washed out. Uh, they begin to see that Paul really is relying on Christ. So we know after the first Corinthian letter, that Paul likely sent uh, with Timothy. Um, he didn't go, and he asked them to make, make sure Timothy dwells with them without fear, remember? So Timothy shows up with a letter, he's standing right there, they're reading the letter, and they read, make sure Timothy can dwell there with you without fear. So after that, it appears that there was another letter written that's referred to as the severe letter, and we see that referred to a number of times that we have indications, 2 Corinthians 2, 4, and some other places that there was another letter we don't have total of four letters, we only get two of them, First and Second Corinthians, that we indicate, but one that came before First Corinthians, First Corinthians, one that came in the middle, and then Second Corinthians. We don't get to keep those two. One was sorrowful, one was severe. The Lord hasn't seen fit to preserve those four. So, but there's references to them, so we know that they exist. So, we have this other letter that came, and, and Paul appears to have sent that letter to the church with Titus. Second uh, Corinthians 7 seems to indicate that. And Paul was so anxious about Titus' safety and the church's reception, because the one from Timothy didn't go so well, uh, that uh, the severe letter, that he left Ephesus and he goes to Troas to look for Titus. And, and even though there was a wide door of opportunity for Paul to minister at Troas, there was, he was so distraught about the rebellion of many in the church, he couldn't minister until he heard the news from Titus that many in the church had repented. And so there was this, you know, a people in his spirit, we're going to see this in just a minute, but Paul has done all that he can physically do as a minister to deal with this rebellion, this disrespect, this sinfulness of this church. He sent a severe letter. Titus delivered it. He hadn't returned, so Paul went looking for him. He arrives in Troas, and Paul describes it this way. Verse 12, he says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ. Now we can break it down. You know the, the big picture. Let's just kind of shrink it down now. Paul knows he's insufficient to the task of bringing about change in this church in Corinth. Obviously, by now. 18 months there. You know, a total of four letters back and forth, a lot of disrespect, a couple of visits. You know, he knows he's ineffective and insufficient to be uh, effective and change in the life of this church. He's doing what he's supposed to do. Paul says, I confidently boast that I, in the, in, in the Spirit of Christ, I did these things. I gave you what you were supposed to have. I can say that I did what I was supposed to do according to the Lord. Okay, but he knows he can't, he can't in his own effort and by his own strength or anything he's going to pull from his past, there's no way he can physically change 
what's going on and bring about change. He's insufficient to that task of what's going on in the church in Corinth. And yet he still was about the work of the ministry. So he says this, uh, uh, number one, even in insufficiencies, there's still consistency. Here's what I mean by that. So he's not been effective in, in change there, even though he's done exactly what the Lord has done. He knows the Lord has to do it. But the plan for the propagation of the gospel hasn't changed. Okay? So in his insufficiency, he understands he's not effective. He's not going to rot change by his own physical presence or something he's bringing to the table. The Great Commission is still a command. Christ led this way, right? I have come to seek and save that which was lost. He modeled it. He gave the commission for us to do. And it just reaffirms his faithfulness to his calling. The gospel is the good news of the peace of God. His pardon, his righteousness, life, salvation by a crucified Jesus. This was Paul's work. This was Paul's business. This was his heart. It was what he pursued every place he went. See? He just followed Jesus' leadership and took delight in it. He knew that he was insufficient to the task of physically changing the church if the Lord didn't work in that area and didn't do it, and the Lord was doing it in his timing. So Paul's just, he's there, and he's just, being, he's just being consistent to do what he's supposed to do. And if it couldn't personally change in his timeline, the church in Corinth, it didn't change his first job. And if you've ministered, you know that, okay? You know you may not be able to change certain things about a church where you minister, but your, your jobs haven't changed at all. You still go about the same things you're supposed to do, and that's where you find the Lord saying, you were faithful to do what I told you. And then I love this next part of the timeline. Look at this next part of verse 12. He says, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord. Here's the second thing, all right? Sufficiency in Christ, insufficiency in the minister. When you regard yourself as insufficient, you watch for the Lord to cause things to happen. You, you know that, right? It's, it's only the Lord that's going to make stuff happen anyway. And this is the same thing Paul said uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8. I'll let you write that for a second and I'll switch. When you regard yourself as insufficient, you watch for the Lord to cause things that happen. When you are insufficient, there's still a consistency there to just do your job that you're supposed to do. I went there for the gospel. Okay, he left. He's, tied, he's worried about Titus. He's worried about the church. He knows he can't change anything there by his physical presence or anything that he's going to bring to the table, but he's still going to go to Troas, and it's there for the gospel, see? And then you regard yourself as insufficient. You watch for the Lord to work. And he said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 16, 8. He said this, he said this, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, mark this, for a wide door for effective service has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. Paul's always looking for this. Why? Because he's insufficient to open any doors on his own. See, and so are you in ministry. You can't open any door to somebody's heart. You can't effectively counsel someone unless the Lord opens their heart. We can't even protect our property unless the Lord watches over a city. What? The watchman watches in vain. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. See, there's, there's no effectiveness apart from the Lord working through the individual. And it's the same here. Paul's always looking for this. And it's a common expression for him. Paul comes back from his first missionary journey, Acts 14, 27. Here's what he says. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done for them, with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Who did it? Paul and Silas? No. They didn't bring anything to the table from their outside life that would in any way affect eternity but the lord did it see and you get the same sense of the word faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of christ romans 10 17 so this is the door that the lord had opened for doing his work and it was obviously effective so paul's doing the work of the lord by consistently carrying out the great commission and god opens the door for him and jesus leads the same way too see how about Colossians 4, verse 3? Same idea. Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open us up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make clear in the way I ought to speak. Three prayer requests. What are they? God will open a door for the word because he has to do it because no, no kind of oratory ability, no type of ability to bring the word is going to be effective unless the Lord opens up a door for it to be effective. See? And uh, can I express to you uh, transparently? Saturday night, this interrupts my sleep regularly through the night. Lord, I pray that the, me the message that I put together, before I start the message, it's, Lord, you, these are your people. You know what they need to hear. And secondly, on Saturday night, it's, Lord, now that I've put together what I think they need to hear, open a door for their hearts and help me effectively give that word and then work your way out. And over and over, I prayed it five minutes before this, I came into the service. And you do that too, I know. As you do your ministry, Lord, this is your word. These are your people. They're best served by your word. Please make a way for it to be open and for hearts to hear, see? 
And that's the only way anything's going to be effective through the word. So Paul has a prayer request. Open the door for the word that Paul would speak the gospel clearly and that it would be clear how he should approach and deliver the subject. How should I go about this? And when you're in counseling somebody or mentoring somebody, you should be asking, Lord, how should I go about this? What's the first things I should say? How, you know the heart of this individual. I have no ability to rot change in anyone. It's only your Holy Spirit. Show me what I should say. See? So it's not an uncommon way to go about ministry, but it seems very uncommon in our society, which has this overinflated uh, 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 view of their own sufficiency, that I can do this, you know? God works all those circumstances for those who know they are insufficient to the task, see? Then we have this great illustration of this principle in Revelation 3-7. I love this passage. I love teaching this book to you. But this passage particularly I love as he's speaking to the churches, which are, were real churches during Paul's time and are illustrative of churches all throughout the ages, all the way up until the rapture. So we still have the same kinds of churches out there that we had in the first century that, Paul, uh, that John is dealing with here. And so they, it really applies. But listen to what he says. He says, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. So who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, okay? He opens and no one can shut, and he shuts and no one can. He's the one who opens the doors and closes them. He's the only one who can. It never was any different than that, regardless of what people might think, okay? I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. So John's writing to the church aides. He's writing specifically to a faithful church. Faithful to what? Well, he knows their deeds. They've been faithfully doing the work that they're supposed to do. So not, not what they think they should do, not what's popular, not what's you know, trendy or whatever. They've just been faithfully giving out the word, carrying out the Great Commission. You know how churches grow historically? People in the church carry out the Great Commission on a regular basis on Monday through Saturday, and the church then grows because people come to faith, see. Historically, that's how that happens. People come to me and they say, you know, my church is dying, you know, up in the Northeast, I don't know what to do. And I always ask, well, do you have any soul winners in the church? I don't know. Well, if you don't even know if you have soul winners, it's not a surprise to me that the church is having a hard time because you have to have people who carry out the Great Commission or the church shrinks, Right? I mean, that's kind of how it goes. So they have spiritual power. So they, they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're doing the work of the Lord. They have spiritual power given to believers, of course, those who know they are weak without it. They have kept the word. So what does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? Just the basics of what, the word, what does the word say? What does that mean? Okay, how can I apply that? Every day in, your, in the word that you read, you should be saying those, asking those questions. And then doing those things, see, so they've been doing it, they've kept the word, and they've not run from persecution, so they've continued in the midst of difficult ministry, regardless of what it was, just kept on trugging away, right? Whatever season it was in the culture, whatever season it was in the church, just keep on going. So God opens the door of ministry to them, see? And so we see then at Troas, Paul is watching for this because, because mark this, insufficient ministers know they can't make any door open at all. So Paul just, wherever he goes, he's just watching for the Lord and see if he'll open a door for ministry there. And we know exactly what he's speaking about, right? God's still in the business of opening up opportunities for doing his work, just like we saw in Revelation chapter 3. And as we said before, you know, if there is a need in the church and it, it will fulfill the purpose of God as he has laid it out for us, then, and you can fill that need, then that's an easy decision, you know? I mean, that's an open door of ministry for you. If there's a need in the church, it fulfills the purpose that the Lord has put us here for, and you have the ability to meet that need, that's an easy equation to solve. Are you supposed to be doing it? Well, if you want to match the type of understanding that we have from Paul, absolutely. An open door for ministry has been given to you. Do it. And before we leave this verse, here's the deal. Opened is in perfect tense. When a door was opened for me in the Lord. And what does that mean? Well, it just means that, unlike the verses we looked at as illustrations, where they were praying that God would open a door, potentially, here the door was already open, see? It's standing open, if you will. The need is there. God has provided Paul and all those who want to do the work of the Lord and know they're insufficient. Doors will open so that needs can be met. And here Paul said the door was already open. As Paul came to Troas, the Lord had opened the door for him to be effective there. Why? Because Paul met, he, met that, he met that requirement, which is 
I'm insufficient to do any of those things on my own and I'm not bringing anything to the table that's going to be effective in this ministry. And that takes, and beloved, can I say this away? Especially if you're new to the ministry, you're thinking about ministry, you're new to the ministry, and you're, you're a lot, there's a lot of nervousness going on, whatever. It just takes all that right out of the equation. Why? Because you're not there to please any individual person. The fear of man brings a snare, right? But that's out of the equation. When you just realize you're insufficient to the task, and it's only the Lord who's going to be effective in, the, in doing his word, you just take the word. You don't worry about what people think about you. When, when you walk out, I don't want you to think about me at all. I would like you to think about what did the Word of God say, what it mean by what it says, how does that apply to me? That's what I want you to think about. I'm not worried about whether you think I did a good job with it or didn't do a good job with it. Honestly. I mean, the flesh does, and I'd like to be liked. It's, pretty, it's nice to have people say, well, I really appreciate that ministry, or you know, you're very effective in preaching, but I find that that's kind of troublesome for me sometimes. Because that's not important. I don't want to focus on that at all. For you, if you're thinking about ministry, you're doing ministry, you're getting nervous, whatever, deal that, all that out of the equation. As soon as you realize you're insufficient and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about it, it takes away all that worry, okay? About, hey, you know, what if I do this? What are they going to think if I say this? That doesn't matter. So it's in the perfect tense. God's opened the door. And so if you're insufficient, doors are going to be open. Just do it. Do the ministry. Now look back at verse 13. We're about to wrap up here. I had no rest for my spirit. That's the next part. When I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ and when the door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. Now this is no surprise to Paul, okay? And certainly no change from the norm for him. Principle number three, though, as we see this, remains unchanged throughout the ages. Expect adversity and difficulty when you do the work of the Lord. You should expect that. Just because you're insufficient to the task of ministry does not mean that the Lord won't give you his heart for the ministry. Okay? And you're going to feel the burden, and you're going to feel the trouble, you're going to feel the hurt. And I think it would be safe to say that a believer is rarely allowed to pursue the work of Christ unimpeded. See? The sufferings of Jesus are ours in abundance. And so are the comforts of Christ. If you're doing the work of the ministry, you should be feeling the same types of feelings perhaps that Jesus felt as he did the work of the ministry and the heartbreak that he had when he saw people walking in difficulty and sin. See, if Paul is our example in anything, we can certainly see the truth of that statement, the trouble in his own heart. And Paul says, besides all the trouble I had traveling and, and with my own countrymen and all that kind of stuff and, and being out on the deep a couple of times and crossing rivers and animals and all that kind of stuff, the daily worry for the daily anxiety of all the churches, right? Everything that's going on in the churches, who's in sin that I'm not troubled, Paul says. So, you know, if you're, you're insufficient to the desk, but you just count on Christ's leadership, what is it, how did he feel about it? And that's how I'm going to feel about it, right? And usually the greater the opportunity for ministry, the more serious the difficulties that come and the worry and, and trouble to your heart comes. In, in Ephesus, Paul had some of those things, you know, some of those in the synagogue, they turned against him. He had to stop teaching there and move somewhere else. And he had Demetrius, the silversmith, turn much of the town against him because the redeemed were not buying idols anymore. And there was this riot and Paul could have lost his life. Remember all this stuff? We've talked about this. And he, and he had some Jews try to copy his teaching. They were severely beaten by demons and all that kind of stuff happened. And, uh, you know, this, you know, we come in the name of Paul. Paul, I know, you know, Jesus, I know, I don't know you. You know, the demons came out and gave him a whooping. But in the midst of all of that, the gospel went out. He was teaching and discipling and doing the work. And all the while, 2 Corinthians 1.8, we looked at this several months ago, tells us how he was feeling. Remember what Paul said there? Um, and I won't, there's no slide for this. Um, but Paul says this. Remember, he's there in Ephesus and, he's, and he goes, I don't want you to be unaware of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of our life. So we thought we were going to die. There was a few times where it was kind of touch and go, Paul says. And, and indeed, we had a sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves. We already knew we, were, we, were, we, already knew we were going to die. We, I mean, as we went along, we didn't know which day it was, but we knew for sure it was going to be one of those days. But in God who raises the dead, Paul's just like, he's there. Things are very difficult. The whole city's in a riot. Silver Smith has turned much of the town against him. He, he thinks he's going to die. And he's just thinking, okay, Lord, I'm doing the ministry here. So um, if they kill me, you're, you can raise the dead. If you want the ministry to go on, they'll kill me and I'll come up and we'll keep on trucking. So I'm, I'm not, that's what I'm going to count on. I can't deliver myself from this. There's no way I'm going to escape this. If this is your will, I just count on you. You'll raise the dead. Uh, and verse 10, who delivered us from so great a peril 
uh, of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. So Paul said we, he, we were delivered, and he can at any time deliver us, and we set our hope for a future deliverance. And so that's kind of how it went. I'm not sufficient, Paul says. This was a very difficult situation, way out of my control, and we just did the work we were supposed to do, see? And the whole time he's ministering, he's despairing, and he's feeling in his heart, this is gonna, this is gonna be bad, and you know, I'm not being effective here, and, and whatever it is, Sinful city being turned easily away from the, the gospel by Demetrius the silversmith. All that stuff, see, suffering of Christ is ours in abundance. Suffering of, of uh, the comfort of Christ, ours in abundance, see. So, not unusual. He's burdened excessively. This is a norm, if you will, if you're going to do the work of the Lord. And I would, I would guess that, um, you know, a marketing and advertising firm would suggest that we probably ought not to put that in the welcome letter that you should fully expect uh, the difficulties to come with Christ and your association with him. We should fully expect that you will be troubled regularly about the sin of, in the lives of the unredeemed and the sin of the life of people that you know who are believers. You know, we probably should leave that out. You know, it should, probably shouldn't be on the website. You know, the handout. Come to Christ and everything will be great. Come to Christ and he's going to be your friend. And come to Christ and, and your life will be better and all that. That's going to that's sell, okay? The other stuff won't sell, except that Christ... Uh, that's not how Christ did his ministry, and he didn't say that we would be that way. He said, you should fully expect this. Peter says, you're going through difficulty. Don't act surprised. I mean, we told you already that's how it was going to be, right? And so disciples regularly have trouble, see? They, they regularly have to have difficulty, and the Lord uses that to perfect us, and he brings us through there, and he shows us to be tried, and he shows us to be true, even coming from believers, you know, the sufficiency in uh, insufficiency is shown just in consistency, you know, just, you don't know what to do, just do it, you know. If you're insufficient, you're going to watch for the Lord to lead and open doors. And then it should, there's going to be difficult times, and sometimes we're so easily discouraged into quitting in the middle of the hardship, and we don't want to deal with a situation anymore because the person is just so harsh back to us or so unheeding of what we're saying you know, or, or a bigger group that just doesn't seem to be responding and you're in the middle of something and they're doing something completely the opposite of what you just said, you know. Paul despaired. He even knew he, was, he knew he was insufficient to the task, but he didn't give up. And he had no rest for his spirit. Why? Because he'd sent Titus with a letter that the Holy Spirit had carried him along to write. He no doubt prayed over it. He sent it to Corinth. He wanted the church to walk in obedience. He desired for their sakes to see them do that, not for his own reputation. See, he didn't write the letter and then they follow and now Paul looks good. He didn't care about that, right? Uh, that he might be known as doing something great. No, 2 Corinthians 4.15, everything he did uh, for the fellowship and for the discipleship and for the glory of Christ and for the church, it was all for that. Not that Paul could be said, oh, he was really effective. He wrote the letter and everything thick, was fixed. Plus, I didn't do any of that for any of that, okay, or those reasons. That's a great model, isn't it? And we're out of time, so I'm going to have to wrap up. You, you, know, you know you have no sufficiency in yourself to create change, but you're invested nonetheless. And when, when believers you minister to are walking in sinfulness, is your spirit troubled? When you know things are going badly, are, are you struggling inside? Are, is it interrupting your sleep as you pray for them and as they walk apart from the Lord? You know, does it drive you to prayer? Does it ask, do you ask for an open door? Because you know you have no effectiveness that you're going to bring from the outside to be effective in ministry. So you just ask the Lord, open a door. Open a door to their heart. Open a door to this people. Open a door to this church. Open a door for your word. You're the only one who can open it. Does it cause you to seek out the only one who could accomplish anything? See? Because if that's the case, you're beginning to live the key to usefulness to God. You're insufficiency to the task. When you're asking for those things, you realize you're not bringing anything to the table except what the Lord empowers you to do. And that's where he wants us. Let's be dismissed in prayer and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for how you have accomplished so many things through your word, how over the years people and churches and nations have read and been revived. We, we know you're able to do that. Your word is sharp and powerful and, and divides the soul and spirit, the joint and marrow, and the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so you're doing that now, I know, not because of me, but because that's what your word does, and you've empowered your word, and you have made it just as important as your own name. And so, Lord... We value it then and look at it that way as uh, most, uh, the most capable and effective tool that we have. Lord, I pray that you open the door for its effectiveness. You're the only one who can open hearts so they can hear it and do it. As we read our word every day, 
Lord, open our own hearts to recognize our own hidden sin and, and camouflage deeds that we don't even address anymore and perhaps the things that we uh, hold on the side and attitudes we have and habits perhaps. Uh, you have full reign to address all those things. And Lord, I pray that you will help us as we um, understand that as Christ ministered, he suffered in the ministry, we too will have difficulty. And help us to be consistent to do the work of the Great Commission, knowing that that consistency is precisely uh, modeled by Christ and also shows that we are insufficient to do anything and that we trust you to do the work you say that you wanted to do and you do it through us. And you open the doors, Father, and, um, and you're the only one who can make things happen. The very key for us being useful to you, Lord, begins by regarding ourselves as insufficient to the task, and I pray that we will be those kinds of ministers as we look forward to our summer ministry, particularly our ministry uh, with VBS. We know as we target some of the neighborhoods around here uh, that we are insufficient to open a door, that we're insufficient for effectiveness for your word. We're insufficient to uh, cause favor in the hearts of the people to want to come. You're the only one who can do any of these things. No creative way we're going to do it. No amount of charisma we bring to the task is going to create any type of thing to happen for eternity apart from you doing it. And so, Lord, I pray that you will do just that. You can open the door there. You can open a door for the word with the kids' hearts when they come. You're the one who can, uh, is effective in causing change. You're the only one. So, Lord, help us to just find ourselves understanding insufficiency to the task, but then empowered by what you've given us to do, we'll just labor in the basic things we know to do and see you work. We trust you, and we love you, and we desire to be those kinds of people. And we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.